Good morning. I have the privilege of preaching from the Word this morning uh, from Psalm 100. So if you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there, Psalm 100. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of background about this psalm. Psalm 100 is part of book four of the Psalter. You remember the book is divided into five books. This is in book four of the Psalter. These are Psalms 90 through 106. And book four of the Psalter was compiled after the Babylonian exile. And so the songs in it uh, come from a variety of eras going all the way back to at least King David. And the emphasis of book four of the Psalms is is hope for the return of the king. You see, the Babylonian exile had meant uh, for the Jews the end of the Davidic monarchy. Uh, That had left God's chosen people a little concerned, a little worried that maybe God might not be faithful after all to his promise to David uh, that he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever as he had pledged to do in 2 Samuel 7. And so within book 4 is a series of psalms that directly answers that concern. Psalms 95 through 100 are tied together by a common theme, and that theme is the praise of God as king. God is the one who reigns. And so this series of psalms that ends with Psalm 100 is affirming that God is the faithful king who reigns above all. Now, nobody knows for sure when Psalm 100 was written or who wrote it. What we do know for sure is that it is a hymn, a song of praise that was probably sung at the temple in corporate worship. It was also surely used by individuals and families who were preparing themselves to enter into worship. But this is a, this is a song of praise, and it is a deeply personal and reverent confession that God is indeed the King and the God who reigns over everything. And so let me read Psalm 100 for us. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. So we read at the top there of this psalm that it is a psalm for giving thanks. This is the the title that the Hebrews of old, the ancient Jews, uh, gave this psalm. This is what the Jewish priests called this psalm in their time. We know this because of the capital letters at the the top of the psalm. That is the the ancient title uh, for the psalm. But So it is a psalm for giving thanks. Well, what does that mean anyway? What does it mean uh, to give thanks? What does it mean to be thankful? Well, our culture generally defines uh, thanksgiving as gladness for the way things are, right? I found on the web a list of 100 things to be thankful for today, right now. 
And here are the the top ten things on that list. And they're all wonderful things. These are all beautiful things to be thankful for. The first one on the list is, is pretty predictable, but certainly something we should be thankful for. Your family and friends. Second, your health and well-being. The opportunity to have an education. Food on the table. Your favorite song. Leslie listened to a bunch of her favorite songs yesterday on Spotify, so she was pretty thankful. Hot showers. The internet. There's some good and bad with that one, but we'll, we'll take it. Having a job. In other words, we have an income. That's certainly something to be thankful for. The ability to dream. And then number 10 is the classic one. Sunrises and sunsets. Isn't that awesome? But, you know, these are all great things to be thankful for, all very good things. These are, this is the kind of stuff we would mention around the table at Thanksgiving, things we would mention in Sunday school. I remember as a kid, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for sunrises and sunsets, you know? And of course we are. They're beautiful, right? These are great things to be thankful for. And you know what? If this, this list is a reflection of the way things are for us, absolutely We should be thankful. Amen. But here's the problem with lists like these and and with our culture as a whole, and that is lists like these and our culture tend to leave out the most important element of joy and thanksgiving. You see, we've got to remember that to give thanks means that we're giving thanks to somebody. We're not just giving thanks to the thin air, are we? At least we ought not to be but our culture does. But in fact, for the ancient Hebrews who sang this song, there was an understanding of the fact that thanksgiving and joy actually surpasses the way things are. And that's because they were looking up to the one who was going to make things truly as they should be someday. You see, after the Babylonian exiles, the exile, the Jews are living in a world that is not yet as God promised it will be someday. There is no independent Jewish kingdom yet, much less a throne that's going to last forever. And yet here they are singing this song, and they're full of joy and thanksgiving. And that's because their thanksgiving, their joy, are about who God is, not about the way things are right now, today. It's a joy and a thanksgiving that is is not rooted in a list of 100 things to be thankful for. And so the Jews of old sing this song and they're celebrating God himself. What God has done for them is certainly on their minds, absolutely. It's very appropriate. But their joy and their thanksgiving here in Psalm 100 is not about counting those blessings in particular. Instead, their gladness is about taking stock of who God is. And they celebrate it. You see, because God is who he is, that causes them to be full of joy and thanksgiving, even without the fulfillment of God's promises to David so long ago. And so here's the big idea of Psalm 100. It's very simple. Worship God with joy and thanksgiving because we know God and because he's faithful. And then the gospel lesson that we're going to take home with us today is that because God has proven his faithfulness to us in Christ, 
joy and thanksgiving are essential responses to his grace. In other words, brothers and sisters, a grumpy, ungrateful Christian is a living contradiction in terms. And so as we prepare to dig into this psalm together, let's all consider this question together. Do joy and thanksgiving toward God characterize your life? Is that who you are? And so let's go ahead and dig in. Let's see what God has to say to us in Psalm 100. For us to get a handle on this song, we've got to first understand the structure of it. The structure in Psalm 100 is very important. Now, before you think that you're in your sixth grade English class looking at a poem, uh, let's look at it this way. The structure of a psalm is kind of like the two-by-fours you use to build a wall. How you nail those two-by-fours together is what dictates the shape of the wall. And so how these verses relate to each other helps us to understand the meaning that the author is trying to convey. So you might remember uh, uh, an interesting fact about ancient Hebrew poetry, and that is that it does not rely on meter and rhyme. In other words, the Hebrew poetry of the Psalms does not sound like this in the original language. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You can really get something going there, right? All right, but it doesn't sound like that to the Jewish ear. Instead of rhymes and, and meter like that, it depends on other devices, especially one called parallelism. Parallelism introduces an idea and then expands on that idea either with similar or opposing statements about the same thing. And we see this in spades in Psalm 100. So in, instead of words that rhyme, it's ideas that echo and contrast with each other. And instead of rhythm and meter, it's themes and concepts that intertwine to, to form a pattern that produces the depth of the meaning in the song. And so Psalm 100 is a beautiful example of parallelism. Every verse is a part of this parallel, uh, parallelism. Now, it's, it's composed of two uh, major parallel sections. The first, uh, well, they, they both of these sections uh, have a call to worship, and that's what I've highlighted in blue on the screen. And then each section also has a cause to worship, and the, those are the verses that are in black. And so the first parallel section is verses 1 through 3, both the, the blue and the black verses there together. Uh, the first half of the psalm. This is a, a joyous call to worship God as king. This is a celebration as well of the relationship that he's made with his people. And then the second parallel section is verses 4 and 5. This is a call to give thanks to God because of his, thank, uh, because of his faithfulness. And here's the really cool and ingenious thing about the verses of this psalm and about how it all works together. It's not only divided into these two parallel sections, the blue and the black and the blue and the black, but the verses in blue also parallel each other. The blue and the blue parallel each other. And then the black verses also parallel each other. And so what we have then are the two 
uh, main sections of the psalm, verses 1 and 3, which parallels verses 4 and 5, but also verses 1 and 2 parallel verse 4, and verse 3 parallels verse 5. And so we've got this, this web of meaning in this psalm, and it all conveys what we need to know about approaching God with joy and with thanksgiving. And so as we go along through this psalm, we're going to look at the two-by-fours of the psalm, and we're also going to dig deeper into the ideas that are connected by this structure. And so let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. Get started here. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And so we've got three parallel imperatives here. Even these sections, are these verses are are one parallel statement after another. And so we have three exhortations or calls to worship. Make a joyful noise or a triumphal shout to the Lord is the first one. The second one is serve or worship the Lord with gladness or joy. And then third, come into or enter his presence with singing and praise. And so each of these statements parallel each other. They build the meaning one upon the other to teach us the proper attitude that we should have toward God. And so these three imperatives, make, serve, and enter, these all make it very clear that joy toward God is absolutely essential. And then we see three more imperatives. Uh, imperatives in verse 4 and these parallel the ones we saw in verses 1 and 2 enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise give thanks to him bless his name and so we've got three more very similar imperatives to worship enter his gates and his courts with thanksgiving second give thanks to God third bless or praise God praise his name And so verse 4 builds on verse 1's idea of joyful worship of God by adding the element of thanksgiving, of gratitude to God. We're not just joyful, but we're also grateful to God. And so the aim of all of this, this, both the joyful call in verse uh, 1 and 2 and the call to give thanks and praise in verse 4, all of this is meant to exalt and glorify God. It's about God. It's all about giving him praise and him the honor that's due his name. You see, this is, this is profound and extreme elation just about who God is. This, is. this is very loud and raucous kind of worship to our American ears. This is praise, singing as loud as you can and clapping your hands and demonstrating joy in the Hebrew culture. But in our culture, we're not really used to that kind of exuberant, ear-splitting display of joy, are we? In fact, it kind of makes us a little uncomfortable, at least when it comes to God. But hey, we'll whoop it up when the Nats beat the Yankees, right? Amen? Yeah, woo! That's good. But we don't do that so much in church, right? We're a little too prim and proper for that. But here's the thing, we've got to remember not just to be glad about what God has done for us. He has done a lot, don't get me wrong, absolutely. He's saved us from our sins, he's given us new life, he's even given us eternal life. We absolutely should be thankful for those things. But what about who God is? 
When was the last time, even in private, that you just shouted, I praise you, Lord. I praise your name. You are a great God. And I love you. I love you for who you are. When was the last time we did that? Maybe some of us have. I hope so. But how often do we revel in his character and nature, in his holiness? Well, Psalm 1 is, uh, 100 is reminding us that the very foundation of all the things that he's done for us and all the things that he is doing for us, the foundation for all of those things is his perfect character and nature, his holiness. And so I think we can think about it something like this. You know, if I only thanked my wife, Leslie, for just the things that she does for me, the laundry, the bills, the fact she goes to work every day to help us make ends meet, if I only, if I only thanked her for the blessing that she is to me in those kinds of ways, but I never expressed the joy that I have in simply knowing her, well, I'd probably be living in the backyard, right? And rightly so. You know, if, if that's all I did, she'd start to feel like that all I did was think of her as my maid and my personal assistant, rather than the person I cherish more than anything else in this world. You see, I've got to remember to praise her simply for who she is. The things that she does for me are definitely evidence of who she is. They're a great blessing to me. But you know what? I'd be failing her if I never acknowledged the joy that her personality and her character give me. I'd be failing her if I never expressed, expressed thanks to her simply for who she is. And I think that's something of why we're called to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Why we're called to thank God for who he is. My dad is fond of saying, God is not our chore boy. And you see, when we only express joy and thanksgiving for what God has done without reveling in who has done those things, God can become kind of a divine maid to us. This maid who's supposed to make our lives all neat and tidy and then our prayers become a to-do list for God. And then we find ourselves only praising him when he, when he answers that to-do list, when he fulfills those items on our list. But when we love God for who he is, Well, that's when our joy transcends the to-do list. That's when our joy surpasses all circumstances because we're celebrating God. We're celebrating his goodness and his holiness. This is exactly what Paul is meaning in Philippians in that famous verse when he reminds us to rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always, right? Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In other words, when we revel in the perfect character and nature of God, we're acknowledging that our joy and our gratitude is rightly planted in God himself and nothing else. And you see, when that's the case, it's no wonder we would want to make a joyful noise. It's no wonder we would want to give thanks. 
But let's be clear here. The point of all of this loud, joyful noise, the triumphal shout, the praise, and the thanksgiving, the point of all of this isn't to give us permission to go nuts when we gather for worship. I remember, I remember uh, uh, years ago, a dear brother in the Lord and a church Leslie and I used to attend. And one Sunday, uh, in fact, this happened over uh, several Sundays, he was going through a period in his life when he was just so overcome with joy in the Lord about God himself. And he, he literally just shouted it out at the top of his lungs right during a prayer portion of the worship service. And it scared everybody. He was a big guy. He's a big burly guy and he had a loud voice and so I imagine that he, he didn't keep doing it. I imagine the pastor took him aside afterwards, maybe walked him through uh, uh, Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 14 that our worship gatherings ought to be orderly and his shouting <laughs> was scaring people. And so in light of that, in light of, in light of the fact that our worship should be orderly, the exhortation to make a joyful noise in Psalm 100 means that when we approach God, yes, we should be full of joy and thanksgiving. And yes, we should express that gladness and praise. And we should do it publicly and yet always in an orderly way. But here's the thing. We can't hide behind that admonition of Paul's either. You see, our joy should never be hidden it should never be hidden you see this is what my rejoicing brother had right so many years ago even if he was too exuberant in the worship service this shout of joy uh, in the first verse is a public proclamation of gladness that is directed squarely at God but it is public Everyone there knows about the joy that's being expressed. This is a public expression and confession of the greatness of God. So is the call to give thanks in verse 4. By giving thanks explicitly to God, what we're doing is we're making a confession that, that God is the source of all that we need. We're thankful to God because we're realizing and recognizing that all that we need can come from nowhere else but him. And so while these verses are not telling introverts like me that I've got to become an extrovert, that would be impossible anyway, what they are reminding me about is that others should notice my joy. They should be aware of it. That's because my joyful shout and my praise and my thanksgiving and my raising of hands and worship and so on, whether it, whether it busts somebody's eardrums or not, all of that needs to be heard as a testimony of God's greatness. It's an essential part of belonging to God. In Psalm 95, uh, Ernest read it a little while ago. It's a psalm that is very similar to Psalm 100. And it is part of this group of psalms that proclaims the kin, uh, kingship of God. And it calls us to make a joyful noise to God, just like Psalm 100, and to worship him with thanksgiving. But it also goes on to speak about the greatness of God. Beginning in verse 3, For the Lord is a great God, and a king above all gods. In his hand, uh, in his hand are the depths of the earth, 
The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. That's a great God, isn't it? And so the point of all of this, brothers and sisters, is something like this. If we can go to a Nats game and cheer so loudly that we make the stadium shake, how much more ought we, the church, to, make, to raise the roof of this building with joy and thanksgiving? How much more ought we to be expressing the joy that God gives us? You see, a great God deserves great praise, doesn't he? A God who has not withheld his grace and mercy deserves our unrestrained praise. And so that's exactly why we sing loudly sometimes in church, why we clap our hands and raise our hands and sway to the music. It's why sometimes we call out amen during a sermon. Pastor John and I wouldn't mind if you did it more. But you know what? It's even why we can smile when we leave this place and go out into this lost and broken world. Why we can be full of joy even when uh, life is hard to deal with. When we're standing in line at the grocery store and it's being held up by this dude who's got way too many items for the express line. When life throws us curves when things don't go the way that we want them to, when we get sick, when we're worried, when we're concerned about others, when there's hardship along the way, we can have the joy of the Lord. In other words, God's greatness is why we can, as verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness, even at all times. The Jews who sang this song understood service to be temple service, temple worship. In other words, servant meant the burnt offerings and the sacrifices that they made for the atonement of sins. The Jews are reminded here to serve the Lord not only out of a sense of duty, but because they're full of joy, because of their great God, because God is God. And so by serving the Lord, the Jews are also joyfully confessing their allegiance to God and not to any other God. In their sacrifices at the temple, the Jews are, are obeying God. They're doing exactly what God has told them to do. They're acknowledging their need for, them, for, for God. And, and they're doing it all with joy, joy. Now, we no longer serve the Lord literally in this kind of way, but we do offer him the sacrifice of a, a broken and contrite heart, don't we? When we acknowledge our sin and when we acknowledge our need for God's mercy and grace, we serve the Lord in our ministries here at church. And whenever we choose God's way, whether it's here or at work or at home, we choose grace rather than vengeance. We choose obedience rather than sin. We choose honesty rather than deception, even when it costs us. We choose his way because God delights us. God brings us joy. And we also know that serving God also pleases God. And so instead of getting angry at the line in the grocery store behind this guy who's got way too many items, 
We turn around and we cheer up the lady behind us who's just really ticked off that he's got 25 items instead of 12. And dare I say this, we cheerfully pay all of the taxes that we should pay to Caesar on this Tuesday, rendering to Caesar everything that is his, and we do it because the Lord commands it. We do it because we know that rendering unto Caesar all that is his will please our Lord, and that pleases us. We return personal attacks with grace and kind words because we serve the Lord with gladness. It's why we have hope and joy at a believer's funeral, and even why when we're sick, we're full of joy instead of despair. Who God is is why we're always rejoicing. You see, a God who is extremely great deserves an extreme response. Out loud, visible, audible joy and thanksgiving. And so in verses 3 and 5, it is this great God who is described. What is the cause of our joy and thanksgiving? Well, it's God himself. Because God is king. He is exalted above all other gods. He alone deserves the praise that's being offered to him. The Jews who originally sang this song were surrounded by all these pagan nations and peoples who worshipped false gods. That's not very different from today, is it? But the thanksgiving and joy that those pagans were offering to their false gods, that just wafted up into thin air, didn't it? because there really was no one to listen to them. False gods are false. But as the Jews bowed down to the one true and living God, they knew that their praise was being heard. And they knew this. They knew this because Psalm 100 declares the causes of their worship. Verse 3 is the response to the joyful call of worship that we find in the first two verses. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In other words, we acknowledge that Yahweh, the great I am, is the one true God, and there is no other God. That's the place that we've got to start. He is the one true God. There is no other. That's exactly what the Jews heard in this verse. Not only is he the one true God, but he's also the God who made us. And not only that, we belong to him. And not only that, he cares for us. He cares for us as a good shepherd cares for his sheep. And that means that he always looks after us. He keeps us safe. He nurtures us. He sustains us. He makes us prosper in our lives. A shepherd feeds the sheep with good pasture. A good one does. He protects them from danger. And he even knows all of their names. All of this is recalling for the Jews the relationship that God had established with them so long ago through Moses in Exodus chapter 29. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. 
You know, I think any of us who are parents, we can understand how important our relationship to our kids can be so that we can properly care for them. You know, we've got to know their likes and dislikes, whether they like peas or hate spinach. We've got to know their temperament, their strengths and their weaknesses, whether they're good at math but struggle with relationships. We've got to be able to love them even when they're unlovable. And I know uh, any of you who are kids under your parents' care right now would never fit this description. But even when our kids grumble and smell bad and think we're not very smart, right? We've got to know how to love them. We've got to be able to love them then. And knowing them intimately helps us to care for them and to love them appropriately. And I think this is exactly the kind of relationship that God has always had with his people. He is the God who allows us to know him, first of all. And he is also a God who knows us in return. He is the God who has established a loving relationship with us even though we don't deserve it. That's the kind of God we have. That's who he is. He is a caring God who has a genuine relationship with us, a God who knows us deeply. And so our relationship with him gives us extreme joy, or it ought to, especially in light of the fact that we don't deserve his love. We don't deserve this relationship. That's why we ought to worship him joyfully, because he's established this relationship with us. And so that's the first reason we worship God, why we worship him joyfully. It's because he's a God who has a loving relationship with us. The second reason that we worship God for who he is, uh, we find in verse 5. We worship God with thanksgiving, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the pinnacle of Psalm 100. We worship God with joy and thanksgiving. Why? Well, because he's good. He's good. He is the epitome of good. And that goodness is proven by the fact that God is loyal and faithful. And so for the Jews who were singing Psalm 100, God's steadfast love and faithfulness recall that commitment that we read about a few minutes ago, that commitment that he had made to his people. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. God is loyal and faithful because of his relationship with us, because of the commitment that he made to his chosen people. The Lord is good because of his faithfulness, not only to his own people, but also because of his faithfulness to himself, because of his holiness, a holiness that demands justice. God is faithful to his own, and he's also faithful to mete out his justice. This is what the prophet Nahum was talking about in his prophecy in chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. For the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. You see, God is good because he keeps all of his commitments, every single one of them. He protects his people and he destroys the wicked. That's faithfulness. That's faithfulness to his own holy character and nature. 
He keeps his commitment to his people because it is impossible for God to lie. In the letter of Hebrews, we learn that. And also, because a holy God requires justice. But think about this with me for a minute. We've been talking about a good God. What about a bad God? What would a bad God be like? Can we even imagine that? A God who would go back on his word, who said one thing and did another? Well, actually, I think most of us can. We can imagine that. And that's because our idols of self and rebellion before we knew God led to one place, didn't it? Destruction. Destruction and trouble and wretchedness. And the devil delighted in the wreckage of our lives. But then this shepherd came along named Jesus, and he made us one of his flock. This is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the kind of shepherd we've got. That's the kind of shepherd we have. Our Lord is good. And we have a relationship with him, just as verse 3 taught us. We see that relationship in Jesus' words a few verses later. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And then in verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that faithfulness? Isn't that steadfast love? This is the loyal love of God. And his loyal love is not a matter of, of obligation, but it's a matter of mercy and faithfulness on his part simply because he's holy, simply because he has said he would do it. And so God's steadfast love doesn't depend on us at all. <laughs> God loves us loyally because he declared that he would. That's why. And you know what that means about God? It means that God is completely dependable. You see, the steadfast love and faithfulness of verse 5 builds on the ideas of verse 3. Our relationship with God is sustained by God's faithful love for us. His love for his people surely was not based on their faithfulness, on the faithfulness of the Jews. The Jews proved their unworthiness of his love and faithfulness over and over again. It was God who sustained us. God who sustains us. And so we need to remember all this the next time we prove ourselves unworthy of his love by our own sin. As tempting as it is to condemn ourselves when we sin, we don't have God's permission to do that if we claim to be followers of Christ. And the reason for that is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here's our guarantee of that straight from the lips of Jesus Christ, this time in John chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so when we belong to Christ, his steadfast love and faithfulness sustains us as we repent of our sins. God's love is not only loyal, but God is also faithful to keep his promises. And God's promise to us is grace whenever we repent of our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now the point of all of this is that we depend entirely on the goodness of God. And praise be to God, God is entirely dependable. You see, because God is good to the extreme, he deserves our utmost expressions of joy and thanksgiving. There's no doubt about it. In fact, our joy and thanksgiving should be really inevitable as followers of Christ. Joy and thanksgiving should just be pouring out of us all the time. If we're aware of the goodness of God. You see, the foundation of that praise is in who God is, a holy God, a good God, a good God who has established a real relationship with us, a relationship that can never, ever be broken. And why? Because of his faithfulness to us. And so we remember the big idea of this song. Worship God with joy and thanksgiving because we know him. And because he's faithful. Our joy and thanksgiving is our confession of allegiance to God. Our devotion to him. Our affirmation of the fact that we know that he is the one true God. The God above all. The only true God. And that he is always faithful. Even when just like the Jews, we don't yet see how God could end up being faithful in our lives. But just like the Jews of old... Those Jews who, when they sang this song, were still filled with joy and thanksgiving simply because of who God is, even though they didn't yet know how God would be faithful to them. We've got to recognize something very important, and this is our take-home lesson. Because God has proved his faithfulness to us in Christ, joy and thanksgiving are essential responses to his grace. In other words, a grumpy and ungrateful Christian is a living contradiction in terms. And so the question remains, do joy and thanksgiving toward God characterize your life? Are you often at odds with God? Or does his presence and his word and his holy character and nature fill you with joy and thanksgiving simply because you know him? And because he's faithful to us. In 1 Thessalonians 5, near the end of his letter, Paul makes a laundry list of things that are measures of the true Christian, really. Uh, These are things that ought to characterize a believer, a follower of Christ. Things like doing good to each other and being at peace and and those kinds of things. These are things a, a follower of Christ should be. And then in verses 16 through 18, He says this, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Brothers and sisters, we can only rejoice always if we understand that our joy is planted in our relationship with the living God. We can only pray without ceasing if we understand that God is the one who established our relationship with him in the first place and that he is faithful because of that relationship. He is faithful to hear our prayers. 
We can only give thanks in all circumstances if we understand that we're really thanking God for being who he is, the God who is good, the God who loves us loyally, the God who is faithful forever. And the will of God in Christ Jesus for us, brothers and sisters, is that we know that in all things the Lord is good. And that's when we can be full of joy and thanksgiving. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are. We praise your name. We lift up your name as the name above all names. We praise you as the God above all things. We praise you as the one true God, the almighty God the almighty God who has made a relationship with us and who is faithful to us and who demonstrates his loyal love to us every single day. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you have made a relationship with us, a relationship now that is rooted in our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us what it means to be full of joy and thanksgiving because of who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.